Welcome back to the Downtown Den, and I'm delighted today to be joined by the Chief Executive of the Liverpool City Region Combined Authority, Frank Rogers. Uh, Frank, uh, I'm sure uh, when he signed for the job, didn't see pandemic written anywhere in the brochure, uh, and he's, uh, like many in his position, had a bit of a baptism of fire in terms of having to react and adapt to what we find ourselves in at this moment in time. Uh, and of course, like other places, Frank has been busy coordinating a, a recovery plan for the city region with combined authorities, see, as the place uh, where monies will get to uh, and delivery mechanisms will hopefully be uh, processed through uh, as well. So, Frank, welcome to the next time, Den. Thanks, Frank. It'd be nice to me. <laughs> it's great to see you today. And <laughs> I, I know that um, uh, as often our speakers complain, uh, you've not necessarily had uh, a great briefing from me today. So um, we are just going to have a, a general conversation about various matters that are going to impact on the Liverpool City region. But we're going to start with uh, a bit of an executive summary of what our recovery plan in this part of the world looks like. So do you want to take us through that, Frank? Yeah, fine, fine. happy to, Frank. Um, afternoon, everyone. Um, First off, in relation to recovery plan and timing associated with the recovery plan, we've been working on it now almost since we started on the response phase of recovery. We knew that it was something that was going to have very significant impacts for us at a national level and as a consequence of that, at a city region level. So as well as supporting the local authorities and the resilience forum in looking to actually the response phase of this we started work straight away on on the recovery phase of it we're actually towards the end of that now and we're hoping to be able to submit um, a signed off city region recovery plan to government either before the close of play on friday of this week or at the latest very early next week it's a plan that's had the involvement of a, a whole raft of key stakeholders across the city region as you would expect Steve as the Metro Mayor involved with, Joe as the Mayor of the City and the leaders of the other local authorities, the Chief Execs, the Growth Directors, but also critically we've tried to make sure that we've had effective engagement with the private sector, with the business community and with the um, charitable sector and the community businesses. So there's been a whole series of engagements that have taken place to try and shape the plan, but we're at the moment now where we think we're broadly ready to go. It's having some final adjustments to it. But what we've tried to do is make it clear to government that the city region was actually in a really good place before COVID started. We'd gone through a, a period of sustained growth and development. The city region had a lot to protect as a consequence of the advancements that we made, but we also felt we had a lot more to contribute and we were heading in the right direction. Over the course of the last 10 years, we've reduced our unemployment rate from being well above the national average to being just a bit below national levels. The visitor economy and the cultural sector have come on in leaps and bounds, the universities, um, what we've done with the port, where we were with the growing social economy. The city region was in a good place, Frank, and it was heading in, into a better space. And so our plan before COVID came along was looking to make sure we expanded on our strengths, looking at how we could tackle some of the, the long-standing health and inequality issues that we've had as a city region and tackle them head on and tackle them with confidence. We'd been held back for far too long as a city region and I think we were just starting to see the, the potential for us. But because of those um, economic disparities and some of the health equality issues that, that we suffered from, COVID's actually hit us a bit harder than it hit most other places in the country. And where we are now is trying to make sure that we come out of that as best as we possibly can. We're a significant economy in, in the northwest of England, but it's a significant economy at a national level. And we've got to play a really important role in, in supporting that recovery and reducing the regional inequalities that we've got. What, what we have come to the conclusion is, is that whilst um, things have changed 
the long-term op opportunities that we had set out in the local industrial strategy still stand for us. We, we were on the verge of getting our local industrial strategy signed off before COVID hit. We think it still re remains predominantly valid. And our vision for a, a globally competitive, environmentally responsible, socially inclusive economy, that still stands for us in our view. And we've got to look to address some of the health inequalities I've touched on. Climate emergency is, is mission critical for us in that context. But we have got to recognise COVID means that the economy has changed and we won't get back to normal. We'll get back to a different way of doing things and a new normal. But we have to do the best we can within this space. So the plan that we've developed is based on a detailed analysis of some of the impacts of COVID. That evidence has, has led us to believe we're not going to be able to just build our way into recovery. We need to look to reflect the future shape of our economy. And that's why we, we've structured a plan that is looking to deal with business ecosystem issues, focus on the people side for recovery, green recovery. But critically, we want to take the opportunity to try and build back better across everything that we do as a city region. I, I don't think there's many businesses that are untouched across our region and across our country. And as a consequence of that, the Ecosystem Recovery Programme is looking to set out and support national programmes and how we can tailor them locally and support a growth in national confidence with our local input into that. We're committed to delivering a step change in, in facilitating business growth. We've set out a, an innovative set of local interventions that are tailored to deliver effective and targeted support um, and finance for the local perhaps for us locally. But also in there, there's a, some new ambitious but deliverable economic infrastructure projects that can create initially a short-term stimulus, but then lead on to some medium and longer-term growth. And in all of this, we're looking to have strong private sector support in that the business community phenomenally critical within this. Again, we, we can't ignore the pandemic's had a significant impact on people's health, their well-being, their livelihoods, and not least in that mental health as, as impacts are there. But with pre-COVID having the largest growth in employment across the country for the last five years, our people-focused recovery is looking to rightly shape our need to protect labour markets in the city region. There are going to be impacts, but we need to bounce back as fast as we can. And so it's looking at the programmes that we're going to need at a national level and the support that we're going to have to generate locally to support employability, to tackle skill gaps, to reduce skill shortages, but all with a focus on supporting people to get into decent work with decent pay and narrowing some of the employment challenges that we had previously. Our employment sectors have been hit hard, and again, I think harder than the national average. And so we've got to work in close partnership with government to address the challenges. It's important that we recognise this. We, we can't do it by ourselves. This is much, much bigger than anything we'll be able to deliver purely from a region perspective. So we've got to work with government and we've got to work collaboratively with government to address the challenge. And we've got to invest now to generate future fiscal savings. We are encouraged by the fact that government's view is that they want this to be an investment and growth approach to recovery, not an austerity approach. So we support that. Places will change as a consequence of the pandemic. So we've got a place-based recovery programme component, looking at place-sensitive plans and how we support revitalising city centres, town centres and local communities. It identifies differentiated support for different sectors across our economy and focuses on those that contribute to quality of place. Key in that culture and the visitor economy, we, we've been hammered, haven't we? we? We took a presentation to a national group across government indicating that up to the end of June, our culture, visitor economy and hospitality sector lost £1.3 billion. And we were heading into potentially 
three winters on the bounce. So we're looking at how we can manage and mitigate the impacts of that. And we're also looking at maintaining momentum on, on the housing agenda and what we need for those cities and town centres. We, we believe we live in the city, in the UK's most exciting city. We trust that cultural vibrancy. We'll use that to take us forward, but it's a massive component in our recovery plan. And similarly massive is green recovery. We, we recognise significant changes that we require to achieve carbon neutrality. There are references to a Green New Deal now coming nationally. It is, it's mission critical. We need long-term investment to deliver green industries and jobs. And one of the key points we want to push to the fore in that is something that we mentioned previously, Mersey Tidal Power. And aligned to that as well from an energy perspective, an ambitious and innovative housing retrofit program and a long-term approach and investment to hydrogen. So financial cost and economic impact to date leave no, no um, challenge to the scale of the issues that we face here, it, it's clear. We can't do it alone. It's been developed through intense engagement. Its success depends on us delivering it collaboratively and delivering it together. And critically, as I've mentioned previously, we have to do that with government. But each of the projects that we've factored within this is in response to the evidence on where our economy is and what we need to do to move it on. Steve and Joe and the other leaders across the city region are actually more ambitious about growth for our region than, than they were previous to this. They want to see this now as a stimulus and we're going to look to, to use this as an opportunity coming out of a threat and see what we can do to, to change the narrative around COVID and look to create opportunity. So there's a, a lot more than that within the pack, but one of the things that we want to try and make sure is it's something that we're doing across area, all areas of our city region, engaging with key stakeholders to ensure that when we get this plan into government, it's clear to government that it's not a private sector working in a different place to a public sector. It might be a public sector plan submitted to government, but we want it to be one that's got the total endorsement and support of the private sector to engage and help in the delivery of it. So I'll leave it there, Frank. That's a very quick overview of it. It's much thicker in that, in the, in the plan itself. But I'm happy if there's any questions that you want to pick up on on that in the first instance. Great. Thank, thanks, Frank. That's really helpful. And I think the detail, uh, obviously, is going to be fairly significant and people will be able to get a view of that document once it's published. A couple of points that you've made there, Frank, in terms of how we build back and uh, build back better is obviously a, a phrase that's caught on, uh, was adopted by Andy and Steve early doors of, uh, of this crisis, of course. But I, I think build back different might be uh, worth saying as well in terms of Liverpool and our city region, because the point that you make about our hospitality sector and culture it is uh, frightening in one level. Uh, because, you know, those numbers are telephone numbers, aren't they, when you look at the loss of the care. And, of course, the other thing that's come to light is that we now have 49% of the city's rates reliant upon that hospitality and cultural sector, the visitor economy. Uh, and, listen, hindsight's a wonderful thing. Um, we've spent an awful lot of time, effort, money, marketing materials and so on in making this place a great area to visit a great experience when you come to liverpool but as we move to building back and some of these initiatives that we're putting forward frank is the one i on the sense that actually we, we can't be over reliant moving forward on that visitor economy if you're a business you often look at your customer base and you think oh 50% of my businesses with that client, if I lose them, would have been knackered. I think if there's a message from this to me, it might be that we have to diversify a bit more. I don't disagree, Frank. I, and I think that applies to a bit wider than just the visitor economy. If, if you look at our city region as a whole, we have got an over-reliance on a number of large employers 
that if there is a downturn in any particular sector, it will have disproportionate impacts on us. So I completely agree with your point, but I'd say it's wider than the VE. But I think within that, what we want to make sure is that we do everything we can to get the VE back and the, the hospitality and leisure sector back to where it was. Because if we can do that and still grow in a broader and a bigger way, that can only be better for us, can't it? Because that business economy, yes, you, you could argue that there was an over-reliance on it, but I don't think any of us would want the numbers that it brought as a benefit to go down. The key is what we can do in a wider context to, to broaden our um, capability and lessen our reliance on a smaller number of very significant sectors. So that is a key component in it. I think your point's also really important. Build back different and build back better, for me, are actually one and the same thing. So I, I agree with you. If we build back the same, it won't necessarily be better in all of its context. We could do things better than we have done historically. We, we need to think about some of our decision-making. We need to think about some of our focus and your point, broadening our business capability and enhancing our business resilience, I think is all part about building back differently, but also building back better as a city region. And, and just coming to this area that hopefully we'll be into soon, which is starting that rebuilding job and having the tools to get on with things. Whole range of announcements from the Chancellor last week over issues that I think, if he wants to deliver effectively, uh, will be placed with combined authorities and allow local authorities, combined authorities, to get on and deliver those things. Skills, training, education, a particular area of concern in this part of the world, of course, and I know Steve has been putting that as top of the list of things that we need to get more power and more influence over uh, as far as the city region is concerned. Uh, and, and conversations happening now, Frank, isn't there, with our FE and universities so that we can have in place yeah. programmes to go when that money does eventually land? Yeah, very very much so, Frank. Those discussions are, are ongoing and have been for quite a while. I was on to both um, Janet Beer and Ian at John Moore's um, last week. One of the, if, if there can be benefits in the COVID environment, one of the benefits that we have experienced over the course of the last three or four months is actually engagement with government. The ability to get access to both senior politicians and senior civil servants is one of the benefits of operating in a Zoom and a Teams environment. People aren't having to travel and it's, it's a lot more um, readily accessible to get three or four senior government civil servants and a couple of ministers together. And I think we've taken fantastic advantage of that. So over the last three or four months, Steve and I have had sessions with the PM himself, sessions with the Chancellor. There have been ministerial deep dives focused on the city region and the visitor economy was one of the three topics we put on the agenda for that deep dive. We've been talking with a whole raft of um, secretaries of states and ministers and similarly on the civil servant side, permanent secretaries and director generals, trying to make sure that we're informing them of, of our needs, our plans, our intentions and inevitably a bit of lobbying in there for, for what we want out of this as a city region. You, you make a really pertinent point there about employment and skills. And so we have got a particular focus on that with, with government because th there are going to be very significant impacts on employment for our city region as there are going to be for other areas of the country. What we want to try and do is mitigate that wherever we can, but actually respond to it as quickly as we possibly can as well. So we've had discussions with both DWP and DFE and what we're asking them to sign up to is a co-created integrated approach for our city region so that we're not talking to DWP when it comes to the employment side of it and talking to DFE when it comes to the skills and education side of it and then both of them haven't got a clue what we've spoken to them about. <clears throat> 
So we're pushing for a co-created, integrated approach to employment and skills, because you can't really separate the two. They're, in, they're intrinsically linked. We're getting a bit more traction and support with DWP than we are with DFE. I'll, I'll, I'll be honest with you in that context, but we are pushing it. And there is, there's a national group that's being set up that's, um, it's national in its composition, but it's focused on looking at local economic recovery. And so there are representatives on that from the mayoral combined authorities, from core cities, from the LGA, from the LEP network, from the county council network, from the district council network. It, it encompasses all the key um, representative bodies from a public sector perspective but it's cross-government as well. So Treasury are involved with it, MHCLG, BASE, DFE, DFT, and so on and so forth. I've offered to take the lead on employment and skills at a national level within that local economic recovery group to make sure that the needs and objectives of our city region are kept to the forefront of that. Because I think we need to make sure we do, as I've said, all we can to mitigate, but critically everything we can. To, to build back as quickly as we can and get our economy and get our um, opportunities starting to flow again and, and get back as quickly as we can into a place where our city region is starting to perform. And if we move on to other areas that, that are going to be critical, Frank, in terms of getting the economy back on track as quickly as we can, whole raft of things there that I personally believe would be better delivered at that combined authority local level. In my opening remarks, I said that the pandemic wouldn't have been on the uh, the tin when you took the job as chief exec at the combined authority. Having said that, five years ago, we didn't we as a city region would have been in a far worse position because that coordinated approach was something that was sadly missing from Merseyside politics and decision making. That's now fully in place. Uh, and therefore we, we do have a platform of strength from which to build. Yeah, very much so, Frank. And, and in a perverse way, again, I think the last three or four months has strengthened that. It's accelerated that collaborative working. And just as a, a couple of examples in that, um, the local resilience forum that we have and the representation that each of the local authorities have got on that with all the emergency services and, and national health and public health england the effort that's been put in to dealing with the response phase of covid has been absolutely fantastic and so decision making has been accelerated as a consequence of it um, collaborative and joint working has been absolutely fantastic and i think that's flowing across now into the recovery approaches and the recovery phases in this. So, and a really good example in that, you, you may be aware that the city recovery plan has already gone in to government. That's been put forward by Joe and by Tony, but, but critically that's been produced jointly. The city wanted to get it done very quickly and submit. That's entirely their um, remit, that's their gift. So we've supported them in that. We've reviewed that with them. It was produced jointly from an employment and skills perspective with the city and with the CA. Mark Bousfield and I have gone through it with Tony and with Mike Emmerich, and we've um, jointly commented and compiled on it. But really critically, it's signed off by Mayor Anderson and by Mayor Rotherham as a joint submission to government, and it makes it clear within that document it's not standalone it's an integral part of a broader city region response and it fits into that city region response seamlessly so the collaborative working had improved we are in a much better place than we would have been five years ago i, I agree with you on that and critically i also agree with you about the principle of operating at a city region-wide level in ensuring that we come out to this in the best possible way. Indications are that government will look to award funding to the combined authority for the combined authority to then work with city region partners to allocate that funding to deliver benefit. That is on top of 
the local authority funding that goes direct to local authorities for the work that they've been undertaking through that response phase. But we've already seen over the course of the last couple of weeks, 45 million has come in to the combined authority for brownfield land remediation for a housing perspective. 26 million's come in for getting building faster, as they're now calling it. And just last week, we got another 5 million for highways maintenance on a challenge fund. So that's 76 million, Frank, over the course of the last week or two. We're hoping for a very, very significant amount more than that. But, but our understanding is that a lot of that will come into the CA. The CA won't spend it. The CA will allocate it to city region partners for them to deliver on their objectives. But it's hugely important that we're able to demonstrate to government we deliver against that because we've got to get the projects moving. They want to see jobs. They want to see spend. They want to see shovels in the ground and things happening. So deliverability and getting things moving is going to be very, very high on the project assessment agenda. It brings me on to the, the next point I was going to make, Frank, and I think you've probably half answered it at least. If there has been a criticism of combined authorities, not just the one in Liverpool, but elsewhere as well, it's that because of the structures that are in place, we're dealing with public money, so we understand and appreciate the needs to be processes in place. Sometimes it appears two things, actually. One, it takes a long time for some of those things to be agreed. And I think, as you've said, what we haven't got on our side at this moment in time is time. So we need to accelerate those processes. I think the other critical point, and perhaps the combined authority uh, needs to have a bit of a stick and carrot approach to this, is it's no good local authorities bidding for projects on the basis of, let's just get as much money into our place as we can. They've got to be ready to go, haven't they, Frank? They've got to be projects that realistically we can deliver within the next 12 months, 18 months. Yeah, hugely, hugely important, Frank. If, if, if we go and ask government for significant pots of funding and they are able to say, but you haven't spent what we gave you last year, yeah. that, that, that straight away we're compromised. So delivery is hugely important to us. We have had some challenges in that regard, I'll be totally honest with you, but we've had discussions at chief exec level across the city region as well. And, and everyone now is fully understanding that for the funding that is now starting to come in, and hopefully, as I say, we'll get an awful lot more of that. Evidence-based deliverable projects capable of moving quickly is gonna be at the top of the priority even to the extent and I'll, I'll come back to your first point uh, as a follow-on from this even to the extent of value for money and bcr yes they are hugely important because we can't waste this money it's scarce and we've got to make sure we do it right but i think there is going to be a clear emphasis from government they would rather have a 20 million project with a bcr of two that can start very quickly than a 20 million pound project with a bcr of five that we won't see for four years they don't want that at the minute they want the speed and they want the spend and they want to see the jobs impact that come from that so critically coming back to your earlier point what i've also commissioned now is a review of the ca's processes and systems frank so we have to have an assurance framework it's called for government to give us the money we're looking at producing a assurance framework light we're calling it something that still demonstrates good governance and we get good project from but we can streamline an awful lot faster we're asking government for dispensations around some of the treasury green book approaches and processes and we're, we're saying to government look we want to deliver but if you want us to do it you can't ask us to jump through 15 hoops and then expect us to be on site on monday we need to have a more pragmatic approach to that so there is a, a review that's already started looking at how we can speed the process. But it's like all of this, we've got to have the right balance. We can't waste it. We can't spend it on frivolous projects. They have to be robust projects that deliver benefit. But we've got to get them out there faster. Couldn't awesome. agree. Yeah. Uh, and Frank, you mentioned evidence-based 
projects. Uh, and I think uh, you and I have had conversations over a number of years now where perhaps we've been a little over-reliant as a, a place in going, uh, if I can use the phrase, with a bit of a beg and bow, you know, look how deprived this area is, look how poor we are here. And actually, I think, you know, we're better than that. I think we ought to be seen now as a real positive contributor to future economic growth. And, and I have to say, I give you great credit for this. The first genuine attempt I saw at an evidence-based approach to government for funding was around the HS2 project, which you drove and, and you led upon. Uh, and I think we learned an awful lot of lessons from that. And I think out of that has spawned some of the infrastructure projects that you briefly mentioned in your opening remarks. Do you just want to tell us about where those potential projects are and where you think we can get our biggest bang for buck? Yeah, yeah. It, again, Frank, I, I completely agree with this. It's getting almost sycophantic, this, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Evidence-based critics. All laser, mate, don't worry. <laughs> Evidence base is critical, but so is collaboration, your earlier point. So going back to HS2, five years ago, we were all over the place where we? we had a Mersey travel view, we had a individual local authority view, we had a 20 miles more view, we had a res publica view. There were loads of different views of what HS2 should look like for the city region. And the clear message we got back from governments was, well, if you don't know what you want, how do you expect us to be able to deliver it for you? So we pulled it all together, we created Lincoln Liverpool, we listened to what everyone said, and then we came out with one approach and one ask. But we also, in parallel, commissioned a piece of work that put really robust evidence around what the economic benefits of HS2 would be for us as a city region. And we've reviewed that three times now and updated it as a consequence of economic growth in the city. And nobody, Treasury, DFT, TFN, nobody has been able to criticize it and challenge it because it was phenomenally robust and so therefore you start the arguments on solid ground and not shift and sand we need to do that in an awful lot of what we do and i think the city region again has come on leaps and bounds in that over the course of that intervening five years so some of the projects that are out there now like what's going on at paddington and the developments there and the developments in the knowledge quarter we need more of them biomedical activity, um, advanced digital, advanced manufacturing. There's a lot that we've got clear and evidence-based strengths in that we're now putting projects around in conjunction with partners and explaining to government, look, this is what we think you should be supporting us in and here's the benefits that, that will create. And it's getting very significant traction without potentially tempting fate one at Unilever have got a, a, a project looking at um, packaging innovation and trying to minimize the use of single-use plastics. We've promoted that, supported them in that. That is getting significant traction within government at the moment. They're the sorts of things that we need to be doing. And then what we need to have is the ability to say, and we said we would do it, and there it is. It's done. And here are the outcomes that come from it. So, yeah, we are compiling lists of shovel-ready schemes that we can take forward. But the other one, Frank, critical within it is the pipeline of the future schemes to come. So the CA is putting money to one side because, let, let's be honest in this, our local authorities have been hammered again through COVID. Now their finances are in a, a terrible position. They've spent an awful lot more than they've had back in. And their ability to generate projects and fund the development of projects is incredibly constrained. We're not going to secure the capital to deliver them if we're not making them the investment in developing them. So we're looking to put a fund together now to create pipelines of transport projects, housing projects, economic development projects. So when the funding is available, we're there with a list of projects to say, look, we will de deliver that rather than I think what's tended to be the case. Someone's announced a funding opportunity. We put in schemes that might be aspirational, but perhaps not necessarily ready to go. We need to turn that around. I'd rather be in a place where we've got a billion pounds worth of scheme ready to go 
and we've only got 500 million pounds to spend on it than be in the place the other way around where we've got a billion pounds and we've only got 500 million pounds worth of scheme we've got to get more schemes ready because that's how we'll evidence to government that we can deliver i'm sticking with this to, to an extent frank um transport and infrastructure are clearly going to be part of uh, this big solution I was talking to one of your peers uh, a few weeks ago who, who said you've got to be uh, you've got to know a lot about all sorts of different things uh, and not necessarily be a master of any brief uh, now in this part of the world uh, we've actually got a chief executive who is a master uh, in terms of the transport brief uh, and I think if you wanted to be expert in anything at the moment then that's probably a decent subject to be an expert in you've spent an awful long time in this part of the world frank looking at our transport needs looking at connectivity and as i say i think it's going to be increasingly critical and one of our panelists today has just put in the chat that he'd be interested to know what your views are on the role of public transport in terms of building back better that's from robert nason thanks for your question robert uh, and in particular uh, in relation to plans to improve bus services. Uh, as I say, Frank, knowing you for as long as I have, I know you can wax lyrical about this sort of stuff. Uh, you are the oracle on it. So views on public, and that's a compliment, by the way, views on public transport, but also the wider transport piece, as you see. Yeah. One sure way of setting someone up to fail, Frank, isn't it? Call them <laughs> let them make a fool of themselves. <laughs> uh, yeah. Transport, hugely important to us. I actually think, and um, I'll, I'll, I'll stand up to the challenge on this, I actually think we've performed remarkably well, given the challenges that we've had. And I don't mean just as the CA in Mersey Travel. I mean Arriva, Stagecoach, Mersey Rail. With the impacts that COVID has had on them as individual businesses, as, as patronage has, has gone through the floor, they've been down at 10% of pre-COVID patronage levels the services have continued to be delivered and we're now getting into the point of ramping things back up again. You won't be surprised to hear me say, I think public transport is hugely, hugely important for us. It's public transport that gets people to school, people to work, people to health facilities, people to that visitor economy and leisure market that we touched on before. And it's massively important, but it's had a huge blow as a consequence of COVID and the two meter social distance. And you apply that to a bus or a train. And even if people wanted to use them, the actual capacity that they can take is down at 15 to 20% of pre-COVID levels. So huge challenge within that. We, we are now starting to grow back on, on each of the transport modes. So the, the tunnels are now back up to 85% of pre-COVID use. Highway network generally seeing broadly similar increases. Bus and rail are still lagging quite a bit behind. And part of that is due to a loss of confidence, I'll be perfectly honest with you, as a consequence of people. If, if you've got an issue such as a pandemic, trying to get as many people as you can in a smaller pace as possible to move them around isn't really conducive to public confidence in, in that context. So it, it, it's been difficult. We've managed it and we're now starting to come out of it. With the reduction to one metre wherever possible and to one metre on public transport, we've now got the buses into a position where they can carry 30 people as opposed to the 10 to 15 that it was a couple of weeks back. The trains have ramped up now and the service provision is back into 15-minute services. So we're ramping up the transport network to try and make sure that when retail starts to work again and the visitor economy starts to work again and critically schools and colleges and universities start to open up again transport's able to get them there rather than that become another problem to them because that public transport isn't available we understand why um, advice was given to not use public transport we tried to tailor that locally to say use it only where you have to because we were conscious that if actually if we want a green economy if we want to reduce our carbon footprint 
not promoting public transport hugely problematic in that context. So we wanted to try and tune that in to suit the local requirements. And we think that the public transport network has stood up quite well. It's got through this and now it's starting to grow. Coming back particularly to the point that, that was, was raised on, and thanks for that, Robert. Bus is a challenge at the minute because the bus network isn't commercial. At the moment, if you're only carrying 20 or 30% of normal patronage levels, they can't operate in a profitable manner. So the government are funding um, what's called, apologies for this, a coronavirus bus services support grant. And it's going direct to the bus operators. They're effectively getting their costs covered, but they're not being allowed to make a margin. It is basically just net cost. We want that to come to the combined authority rather than to the bus operators directly. And the reason for that is at the minute, it's not a commercial network, but it is a socially necessary network. And the buses should be going to where the people need them to go and taking people to where the businesses and the employment facilities need them to get to. And the private bus companies will be having in their heads. And I, and I get this, I'd do the same if I was in their place, it's not a criticism. They'll have in their heads, how do we do what we can to have a stepped approach back to a commercial market? Our view is we should be looking at it, how do we deliver socially necessary services? And there's a bit of a challenge there between us and the operators. We're trying to persuade DFT to award the money to the CA for the CA to then specify the services that should be operating, the frequencies that they should be running at, and the times of day and days of the week that they should be operating for. But I'm not in any way going to criticise either the rail operators or the bus operators because I think they've done a fantastic job over the course of the last three or four months. But, but the point's a valid one. Bus is hugely important to us. We're going to look to use coronavirus as an opportunity to reshape the bus network, to look to deliver more socially necessary services through this, and to manage the growth back in a way that it's not as focused on how does the operator maximise profit, it's how do we provide the best service possible for the bus user, and how do we integrate across the modes? How do we get buses meeting trains at train stations rather than turning up five minutes after the trains left and vice versa? So yeah, we, we will be doing what we can, but we're actually fortunate that we've got a good relationship with our bus operators in the city region. We've got a fantastic bus alliance. Um, whilst they've got their commercial objectives, they're not completely against what we're suggesting and are looking to work with us for how we can get something that suits their needs because they've got to make a profit, they're a commercial company. They're also very significant employers in our city region, Frank, and we can't miss that as well. They're not just service providers, they are major employers. So it's important that they stay in business. It would just be nice if their levels of profitability were at a lower level so that we could provide more services in a wider context. But yeah, Peter, the point, we're on with it and we're doing what we can. I think, again, you know, if you go back to pre-COVID, the work that Stagecoach, Arriva, Mersey Rail, you know, the investments that they were making to upgrade the buses, to attract a new patronage, uh, you know, it, it's a real shame, actually, that that momentum was stopped because they were working hard as industries, weren't they, to, to, to really up the game. And, and the sooner we can get back uh, to that, the better. What, what other point on the, the transport piece? Uh, and we might have a slightly different view on this. Um, I, I was noting that uh, our mayor, Metro mayor, uh, and they weren't on their own politically in this, we're all getting very excited during that heat wave that we had through June of uh, spending millions of pounds on cycle lanes. Um, I've had a conversation with, uh, with various people on this. I'm not convinced. Uh, and I, I just have this vision, Frank, of us getting all this cash for cycle lanes and then being seen as uh, big white elephants of the future. It's a reminder of what Skelmersdale did with roundabouts back in the 60s and 70s. 
<laughs> I know what I'm about, by the way. Um, a, a, any strong views on that, Frank? Yeah, I, I have, I'm afraid, Frank, as you, as you might think. I, I understand your point, but, but I disagree with it. I, I think cycling, walking, or active travel, as, as it, when we group it together, it's, called, it's hugely important, hugely important. We, I think we've all had benefits of less traffic on the road over the course of the last three or four months. The impacts and benefits that that has from a noise and from a pollution perspective, but I think it's like a lot of things, isn't it? Balance is hugely important. So it's not binary. We don't have any private cars and everyone cycles and walks. Neither should it be binary in the other direction that there's no space for cycling and walking. It's hugely important to us. But it comes back to the other points that we've discussed. We have to do it right and we have to base it on evidence. There's no point in taking out an entire lane on a two-lane road for it to be used by two vehicles, uh, sorry, two bikes an hour, if it would normally be used by 450, 500 vehicles within the same time space. But there's different ways of dealing with that. It, it doesn't have to be either or. And what we've got to try and do is work out a way whereby we promote active travel as strongly as we possibly can. It's huge but we integrate it into the rest of the transport provision and that it's choice for individual, but you can travel in the way that you want to travel, but it's massively important that we do promote active travel. But I understand your concern. The trick in all of this is finding where that balance point is. And, and then when you've got it right at a point in time, continually adjusting for it because I can see that over time with the carbon agenda, and if we do mean carbon neutrality by 2040, we're going to have to move in this direction. But th there is a, a fact, Frank, that something like 80% of the journeys that are taking place in the city region are less than five kilometers in length. Mm. There's not a lot of people who can't walk or cycle that. Mm. And, and the difference that that would then generate in air quality, and on carbon neutrality would be huge. So I understand your point and your position. Don't fully agree with it, but it's about how we make sure we get it in the right place balance-wise and then move it in a controlled way in the right direction. Whereas if we go too far that way, I could see that there would be a lobby back to say, actually, that's a waste of space, that's a waste of money, and it's not getting used. But do it right. And I think it's then a mechanism whereby you can encourage more and more to do it on an ongoing basis. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to seeing how West Lancashire District Council uh, get around that situation of roundabouts and scam and bus lanes. I wouldn't be riding around a bloody bicycle around there, I'll tell you. Anyway, that's a totally different problem and not one you have to sort out. Uh, Frank, I'm conscious that we've got 10 minutes left and one of the things that I always say is strong about our city region, perhaps we underestimate this, is our entrepreneurial uh, talents. Uh, and sometimes they are utilised in uh, the way that the mainstream economy would necessarily see as beneficial. Uh, but nonetheless, we do have an awful lot of talented people out there. Uh, and in this building back different, building back better that we've talked about, I think, again, there is an opportunity for us to say to people who perhaps in the past have had that comfort blanket of some security in the job, look, why don't you give it a go? Why don't you try and start to build your own business? Uh, and again, I know that, that Steve, yourself and others within the Combined Authority and indeed in the Local Enterprise Partnership have been keen to get that enterprise agenda moving so we get an increase in startups. Any sort of thought gone into business support as we move forward, Frank? Yeah, very much. It, it goes back to that ecosystem strand of, of the recovery plan, um, Frank. We, we've got to do everything we can to encourage businesses because out of little acorns do mighty oak trees grow. And it, it comes back to your point again earlier that we've got an over-reliance on too few major businesses and too few major sectors and the more entrepreneurial we can be and the better we are at facilitating growth 
of SMEs and SMEs progressing into larger organizations, the better chance we've got to address that concern of over-reliance. So yet it is a huge component in the recovery plan. There is funding pots that the CA has made available to support startups and create tech industries and, and, and growth industries. We're going to be pushing government more and more in, in that space. So it will be very much a part of what we're trying to do because it's critical for the city region, one, to facilitate startups, two, facilitating growth of, of what we have got and what we previously started up. And that's part of the rationale behind the growth platform and, and doing what, what we do. But wouldn't it be fantastic if we were able to develop a number of companies that can get up into the 500 to 1,000 employees um, status across our city region and look to give us more of that resilience? Because you're right, we are creative almost naturally. We've got to harness that. But I do think the other thing that we have got to recognise is that risk appetite. And, and, and it, I think it links back into your earlier point about how long it takes to get things through an approval process or how long it takes to get approval for grant funding or support from a combined authority. Just like we've got to do an assurance framework light, we also need to change the risk appetite of, of the city region and of the combined authority. And I don't mean by being reckless and becoming maverick. I mean evidence-based, evaluated, and appropriately considered risk with an effective risk management structure around it. Because you can do that. You, you can take balanced risks and mitigate the risk of it going badly wrong for you. We just need to have a, an environment almost that encourages that and germinates that. A lot of people get things wrong. I get things wrong on a very regular basis. But that's how you learn. And, and as long as there's a safety net and, and we can make our mistakes in a managed and controlled way, we'll get more benefit from facilitating a little bit of entrepreneurial approach and a little bit of risk um, appetite than we will do from constraints and restraints. It, it, it's got to be a key factor in, in taking the city region on. Uh, Frank, you mentioned earlier a small relatively small pot of cash that's come the combined authorities way around those transport infrastructure projects that we spoke about are we having to wait until the october budget do you think for those recovery plans to be considered and then for us to eventually find out how much resource we're going to get from central government yeah we're getting dribs and drabs frank but but oh, sorry 76 million isn't trips and traps. It's a significant sum of money. But in the, it's nowhere near sufficient. I think it's an important point to make, but this is one of the reasons why from the start of this, the CA's focus has been working with government to try and inform and shape some of the things that government have done to alleviate impacts on business and individuals. Because our assessment that the financial impact on the city region was somewhere of the order of between one and two billion pound a month. As a, there is no way the CA can help in that space. We couldn't scratch the surface. So our approach was, let's get into government. Let's try and shape how they're going to deal with furloughs. Let's try and shape what they do with um, the, the business loans interrup interruption scheme. Let, let's try and make sure we put influence in place in respect of the, the rates arrangements and all the things that government have been doing. So we've been trying to inform government's thinking, as to be honest, of all the rest of the combined authority areas, it's not just been us, because it was for government to resolve the majority of the issues for our businesses and our employers and our employees of the city region level. There was no way we could touch it. But now coming out of it, we have got to start moving forward with the investment in the projects with the support of schemes and, and how we take it on. So it might be the spend and review that we start to see significant awards. We've, we've said to government, Frank, you, you'll be aware, part of the devolution deal was 30 million for 30 years. And we just got to the end of the first five year allocation 
when we were moving into COVID, what we've said to governments is if, if you think it's 30 million a year for the next five years and that's going to solve our issues, you need to think again. But there is a mechanism there whereby they could say, we'll put multiples on that and award it through the combined authority for you to support economic growth. What we've said is try and front-end load it as well. It, Treasury are very cagey, they'll play it close to the chest. But all the asks that you would anticipate going into government across all of its departments from the CA and its partners are going in. So we're trying to inform the spend and review. We're having discussions with Treasury. We're getting into the Treasurer's ear, uh, sorry, the Chancellor's ear. Everything we can do is there. But we are very hopeful that there will be some very significant funding coming the way of the city region to help us come through this because it will only be from central government that we'll get that. Right, that as always happens uh, on these occasions. Uh, a minute away from finishing and somebody types a question in. Frank, I'm going to because it's from a good friend of, of yours and mine, Sue Patterson uh, from Morgan Simple. She's asking about young people who recently left university, student debt, now unemployed. Are we looking at programmes to help them? Hi, Sue. Hope you're okay. Y yes, we are. Um, in, in relation to the student debt, and I know this is no consolation to the students involved, but if they're not earning, they don't have to pay their loans back. That will only kick in when, when, when they're earning above a threshold. But notwithstanding that, we have to do everything we can to get as many of them into employment as quickly as we possibly can. And that goes back to the earlier point about working with DWP and working with DFE. We're also working very actively with the further education colleges and with the universities. So we want to make sure that there isn't an overly significant impact on the universities with their September, October intake for this coming year. That's a challenge for them, particularly for um, University of Liverpool as a consequence of its overseas students. They're going to have a, an impact in that. Then the other concern that we have got, if there's a drop-off in entry this year, there's going to be a drop-off in graduation in three or four years' time, when hopefully we're going to be in a better place as a city region and we want to retain those new graduates in, into the city region economy. So yes, Sue, we, we will be looking at all of that through the processes. You will have picked up in the Chancellor's um, announcement last week about the um, employment programmes it looks like it's something akin to a future jobs fund type approach with a few changes to it. But our employment and skills team are completely in the mix on that. And as I've mentioned, we're engaged nationally to try and address some of the issues that are going to impact on the young people, because that's, that's the shame in all of this, Frank. I mean, <laughs> I'll, I'll say it myself. I'm approaching the latter stages of my career now, it's the people who are in the 20s and 30s that this is going to hit the hardest. And it's those people that we've got to do everything that we can to try and give them that aspiration and that hope that there's something there for them in this city region. And that's what the, the recovery plan is targeted around. Frank, on that note, a positive note it was as well, we can uh, bring the conversations to a close. Thanks to Sue because she's stopped us having a couple of minutes on football which doesn't disappoint <laughs> I wasn't going to mention it Frank <laughs> <laughs> this amazing. the one thing we can't do that we're not able to figure out how we can do a socially distanced open top tour <laughs> yeah well I'm, I'm quite happy for that to be deprioritized although, <laughs> although I, was, I was saying to somebody earlier actually one of the consolations as an Evertonian in this city is when Liverpool are successful, it usually gives us a boost to our economy. And I know our hotels are desperate uh, for the football in particular to get back up and running because it makes such a big positive impact on them. So, fingers crossed. I'm looking forward to the new season. I'll, this last one I'll, I'll give up on. Uh, but, but listen, mate, it's been great to, to have you with us today. Really appreciate uh, your time and your contribution. I'm sure that people watching have found it really interesting and informative. Uh, and hopefully, Frank, uh, we can get you to one of our live events in the not-too-distant future.
looking forward to it, Frank. It'd be nice to actually get to see people in a face-to-face -face environment again rather than over Zoom and Teams. Nice as it is, you can't beat that interaction. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, mate. I'll see you soon. No problem. Take care. Bye, everyone. Cheers, Thank Thanks, everyone. Thank you.